welcome to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people who have ancestral ties to the land or professional work. I'm Melissa Camara. I'm a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. My name is Clay Charnicht. I am an extension faculty at the University of Hawaii Manoa in the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management. We study ecosystems and fire. And we say this before every interview that the views and opinions expressed by our guests and, and ourselves don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or our funders, just like to create an open space for people to share their perspectives. And if you haven't yet, please rate and review Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We love hearing what you guys think. Every once in a while, we get the opportunity to get some feedback in person. So far, it's been positive. It helps other people find us. And we just really get a kick out of hearing you know, what you guys think. and Yes. And so, for example, we have this wonderful review from SF Brookie who says, Clay and Melissa do a lovely job communicating about and honoring the land and people working to protect it. Mahalo nui loa, SF Brookie. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, we appreciate that. So... All this season, as you folks know, if you've been listening, we have been talking to the scholars and the people on the ground over on Maui about the catastrophes that happened there last year with the fires, the causes and conditions, the aftermath, um, everything to do with the land and the sea, frankly, on Maui. And we're switching a bit now, switching over to the humanities, historians and language people, artists and so forth. And for me, anyway, to gain more of a sense of how and why and what we should do, um, you know, diving into Hawaiian ethics, um, really with our next guest, Hannah Kihalani Springer. She's amazing. She is of Kaupulehu in North Kona. She's a Hawaiian scholar, communicator, environmentalist, storyteller. Her family goes back many generations to that particular place, but she's also been involved in dryland forest ecosystem protection and also her husband, I should mention, is Michael Tomich, who is a retired firefighter and many other things. And we talk about fire on the landscape with both of yeah. them. Yeah, it was great to get Mike to jump in for a little bit. Yes. Both of them are very strongly connected to this place. And I think that's where this inevitably has been leading us, kind of the journey through Maui, thinking about these spaces. And it's what the whole podcast really is about is, is our connection to this place. And so the opportunity to talk to Hannah, who understands so well how and for how long she's been connected not only to Hawaii, uh, Kekaha, that region, mm -hmm. but to, to other parts of the world. Yeah. Um, and I think you'll probably be surprised where that discussion leads us, but I'll, we'll save that for, for the listener. Yeah, it's great. We do get into identity and indigeneity and all of that. And again, you know, just for our listeners' background, she is also a former trustee of OHA. She has worked for Marine Conservation. The Tri-Weight Initiative mm -hmm. at Kaupulehu, really working towards yeah. community-based management yeah. and land and sea. Yeah, she's been an activist in many ways, and she's also incredibly broad and inclusive yeah. in her thinking. So with that, here's Hannah Kihalani Springer of Kaupulehu in Hawaii Island. Wait, can you just ask that question again now that I've got levels checked? And <laughs> Wait, who's interviewing who? This, yeah, this is when it gets turned around. This is really... Now we're in my wheelhouse. <laughs> well... <laughs> What makes one native to the land and when you become native to the land? Well, and, well, and that claim, though, because yeah. indigenous 
might be a term of art. Yeah, mm-hmm. it might be a legal term. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it is or not, but it might be. Mm-hmm. And and what happens to your claim of indigeneity if you're in a land which you are not indigenous to? Right. Right. <laughs> yes. Clay. Well, ask me. <laughs> And I, I just think it's something that it would be good for us in our study halls to start talking about. Back in 1997, when Senate Bill 8 came through the Hawaii State Senate, and in Senate Bill 8, it said that in order for us to claim Native rights, we would have to be able to cite our genealogies and the occupations or practices mm-hmm. that we were claiming. Mm-hmm. Right. And we got all nervous about it. And we said, no, no, to Senate Bill 8. And um, Hayden Aluli, my classmate at Punahou, and I were going, well, too bad. We should be going, yeah, bring it on. Right. We're going to clog the halls of your legislature with us saying our genealogies and telling us what we did on those landscapes. Right. But we weren't ready. So this notion of getting ahead of the indigenous conversation, because it's like I was just listening to a well, this this fellow on HPR this morning, who was saying, um, well, yeah, it's like they they chopped down a bunch of trees, stole stole my ancestors from Africa, enslaved us, brought us here, and now that that the place that they cut all the trees down is broken, they want us to fix it. Right. <laughs> and it's I'm I'm very nervous about that and what their expectations are and when they're not immediately resolved that they're going to say see that's why yeah yeah i mean it's (laughs) it's priming you for failure in a way because it's like not only did they they whatever it's like setting the stage and then setting the rules for what it's going to take to you know, establish rights or establish sovereignty ultimately. Right? There are a few things to consider when we consider the weight of this topic, and they include out of our deep-seated relationships, what is the joy that is there? What is the comfort and confidence that comes from that sort of deep-seated relationship with land Mm. so that we can have the conversation from a place of they were calling it plentitude the point being that we're not deficient yeah that we have abundance we have the abundance mindset i think they call it well it also reminds me of the arguments between sort of quantitative and qualitative right like what your qualitative connection is like how much do you know and feel connected to a place versus your ability to like prove it almost mathematically you know <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. so if we're having the conversations among a diverse group of people and the conversation is the intersection between the qualitative and the quantitative that position is going to be tremendously strong you know, I've, I've seen that down in the consulting work that I have done on some of the um, subdivisions and resorts at the coast here. And when their market plan and our native intelligence intersect on something, it, it's a very defensible position from either side. So in my conversation yesterday, one of the things that we talked about was that, that if the landscape remains familiar and welcoming to us, mm-hmm. and we recognize it as our home, it's unique. 
among their target audience. And that makes it marketable. So that position is a stronger position than coming in and changing the landscape to where it's unrecognizable, but supports their brand. Yeah. I mean, don't you think, isn't that sort of just the deep tension that's always there, though? I mean, if you start talking always. about what, if you're going to market, like, <laughs> like, what is it that makes this place valuable from the perspective? I don't even want to go into this, I don't think. But <laughs> no, like, let's. From the perspective of... <laughs> <laughs> of real estate, right? Because that's really the game, unfortunately, like what sort of is keeping people away from being able to be here as well as, you know, creating these economic opportunities, which is really allowing for development. It allows for, you know, the level and I guess quality of life for a lot of people. But so it's at this double-edged sword, right? right. Um, you know, where does that, you know, where does that leave us? So the resolution of it, yeah. One of the things that I, the story that I, I take um, comfort in is I'm half Hawaiian and three-eighths Yankee and one-eighth Italian. And mother's three-quarters Hawaiian from Maui, father's one-quarter Hawaiian with Maui lineage. They're both Plymouth rockers. So dad's oh. guy came over as a pilgrim. Yeah. I'm descended from the first surviving child of the pilgrim party, born on land, peregrine wow. white. Mom's guy was a pig thief. And <laughs> he came on the Mayflower as an indentured servant. And we might be related. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Mr. Doty? Uh, no. <laughs> but but the, the Parker side of my family that goes to Mayflower, oh, supposedly. So. Ours doesn't. Okay. Ours, ours came some, some generations later. Right. But we did live at, um, there's a Parker Lane in Newton, Massachusetts. Okay. And that's that's where we're from. Okay. There's a lovely um, pond there. You know, all those ponds around New England. It, when, when John Palmer Parker came over, it was called Wiswall's Pond because the Wiswall family lived there. Right. It's now called Clear Lake. So if you're ever in Newton, Massachusetts and you go to Clear Lake, think of me. Yeah, yeah. I will because I would not have otherwise. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went back east to um, see where that side, what the Aina felt like yeah. over there. Okay. So I went to Weathersfield, Connecticut, where we lived for, um, uh, there's seven generations of us were deacons at the Weathersfield Church, mm -hmm. which I believe is the second oldest Christian house of worship in North America. And so visited them, and, and one of the ancestors' houses is one of the historic Still buildings. There, sure, right, yeah, 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 yeah. And tripped me out that it's a maritime town, yeah. but it's so far away from the ocean. Yeah, right. But that great big beautiful Connecticut River, which just, I was so glad to have the experience to know that water and that ancestral water. Yeah. Right. I just feel the breath mm -hmm. off of that and, and the ground beneath my feet and all that stuff. Then we went up to Litchfield, Maine, where the, um, for Peregrine, where the White family okay. moved after they landed. And they went up there while it was still Massachusetts colony. And, and that place just kind of scared me. It was like, oh, this is what they mean by hard scrabble, you know? <laughs> and, and too many broken cars with the windows punched out mm. from the inside. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like oh kind of rough rural zones that so i'm just laughing right now i'm thinking of like listeners who 
would have been, you know, seeing who we've been interviewing and imagining where the places that we'd be talking about. And like, yeah, East Coast and yeah. USA is probably... But I love it because that's your country. That's where my husband's from originally, you know, that part of the world anyway. Um, and I love that you're talking about hybrid, hybridity. And and what does it mean to be indigenous to a place and what does it mean to have lineage and connection to? And then what? And then further, what does it mean to be severed from that? So I think about this a lot. Katie Kamel Mel has brought it up, you know, quite a bit for Kanaka who are living abroad, who are separate from Hawaii, and that she's always saying, you are enough. You are enough. Mm. Meaning, like, who you are is enough. It's sufficient. Yeah, I wonder what you think about that. I think about that as someone of the diaspora of, you know, two very different cultures who's living away from homeland. I was at at Kapalama, in on a conversation for, you know, how uh, Kamehameha uh, schools has their 10-year management strategic plan. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the iterations that I've been aware of and invited to participate in. And uh, so there I was, and I described that heritage, Yankee, Kanaka, mm-hmm. a little bit of Italian. And from the audience was a <gasps> collective intake oh. of breath, exhale, heva. And I said, whoa, 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 resolution. Right. That comes from the grace mm-hmm. of being able to have that abundant mindset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where you don't have to gather yourself into a defensive posture. Mm-hmm. It is sufficient to sit where you are with your experiences and those experiences of your, those who came before you and engage in the conversation. Right. But I'll ever be like learn about where you come from and who you are, but also just be open about it, I guess. I mean, I always like laugh because, you know, <laughs> being Holly, like I can't pretend to be anything else. So it's almost like for me, it's like it's easy in one sense. Yeah. Obviously, it's easy in a lot of ways just built, you know, because of the sort of nature and structure of our society, unfortunately. But in the sense of that identity, right, like I can't really pretend. Whereas I'm always correcting people and saying, no, no, I'm not Hawaiian. <laughs> <laughs> I could pass. <laughs> yeah, there's always that. So, so that that notion of resolving, you know, how can we use what our experiences are to resolve the circumstances around us? And and as you alluded to, in biology, hybrid vigor is, is a real and desired condition of being. How do we help one another to learn to live content within our means? Mm-hmm. That that in itself, in this crazy chaotic broken world is a condition of abundance Mm -hmm. if i knew i'd be governor (laughs) (laughs) so the work that we've been talking about the connection to place whether it's through planting plants or whether it's through ranching like all of these opportunities um that aren't always there for people but allow for some of that connection to be made and obviously it's personal to me because i really came i came to hawaii to study botany and connected to the place by learning the plants first and foremost i mean of course i'm meeting people as well but um i never thought i'd get stuck here to be honest i, <laughs> I always felt like a visitor and that you know very content in that space and then i met my wife who's who grew up here. how it is that's how it goes but just that idea that how your perspective i think just and allows people to understand that there is space for 
everyone to make those connections, even if you yeah. can't chart that continuity yeah. back. I thought of two things. One with the Mo'oku um, with the genealogies. You know, Nahavai'i are, were ambilineal because we know our people well which is the person that takes us to this occupation or that location uh, is the one that we follow. But because we know our genealogies well, they're also a source of humility, which is not often what you hear people talk about when they speak about mo'oku'au whether it's genealogy amongst the Mayflower set mm-hmm. right. or amongst the Kanaka here. Yeah. But when you know your genealogy, you don't only understand the space of those sources of humility, but you integrate them as well into your conduct now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing about ranching, and I don't know how this plays out in the plantation geography, because I don't know that that many Kanaka took to plantationing, right? whether they took to cowboy. Right, right, right. I mean, to me, it's like obvious. Yeah, (laughs) of course. I mean, oh my God, as an adaptive. (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah. But <laughs> it's incredible. But ranching allowed for the Kanaka who did engage with ranching the opportunity to continue a landscape wide yeah, relationship. To continue to go to the places of their ancestors. Now this is not meant to be a defense of ranching by any means, but people still so many of the people who are able to recount relationships to place have come from that tradition. Of course. And because of the nature of the work, because you're out on the land, because you're in the elements, because you're following trails that were probably built upon the trails that your ancestors walked feet yeah. on, mm-hmm. there's, again, that, that the time depth of occupation, as in we're in the place, yeah also served well their occupations yeah. as, yeah, as yeah. cowboys. Yeah. So, and plus, I mean, it's, even they think it's romantic, those cowboys, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so, yeah. um, so just those were the two things I wanted to add. And look, we I'm have, so glad. And here we have <laughs> one. Shepherd. <laughs> the shepherd has just walked in the building. <laughs> well, thank you guys for coming. Just by way of introduction, Michael is a retired Hawaii County firefighter. He also worked with the National Park Service and the Department of the Army as a civilian in firefighting. I don't know if you want to say any any words about. Well, we were just talking about ranching and and you know the lifestyle and the connection and the role that I think think the three of us recognize for the future of Hawaii and as it relates, especially as it relates to fire. Yeah, I I think that. Um, uh, livestock grazing uh, can play an important part. It is playing an important part in reducing fine fuels, and I, I think it that needs to be continued and expanded upon. Well, w- one thing about fighting fire in this country is with a lot of um, uh, the pu'us and changes in topography, you have lots of um, swirling winds. Uh, the winds funnel through between pu'us and over ridges and and make it tricky to um, uh, be fighting fire. Um, there's, there's, you don't get always a, a constant wind direction. They, the, the features of topography really um, 
make the winds do squirrely things. Right. Especially that through the saddle areas. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. You get the venturi effect, and and then swirling on soils. When soils are dry, um, they'll they'll let the roots burn and and act like. Um, mosquito punks with or uh just kind of smolder away smolder yeah yeah if the roots are in the uh -uh, they might get a little more oxygen and so they might smolder faster i I have a question just given thinking about the seasonality and maybe seasonality differences year to year might not be like within the year necessarily but have you seen enough variability in fires happening during greener times that might lend itself thinking about prescribed fire or the application of prescribed fire in other words have you seen fires maybe burning when it's not just bone dry which you had where wow this might be something that would be workable <laughs> like containable because it's something that's come up a lot with some of the county fire departments um and i always I mean, and the public is asking a lot about it actually now too after Maui. Um, and my, my response is typically, well, if you did prescribed fire, you'd still need all of the other elements that we're missing, like the fire breaks and the, you know, the, the people. Good water supply. Good water. Yeah. And so, you know, but maybe down the road as a way to do large scale fuels management. Yeah, I think there's potential for it, but there's... Um a whole lot of work that goes into putting on a prescribed burn safely. Right. Um, you, you have to have your burn plans and um, a good archive of weather data. Yeah. You know, on-site meteorologists that can, you know, just read all the signs and make good predictions. Uh, yeah. We've definitely seen a couple go, like as they say, quote unquote, out of prescription. Um, in guinea grass in particular, where it's, I think, was unexpected how intense it was burning given what they thought were moderate conditions so again defining that window becomes tricky yeah and having that infrastructure that you talked about like with regard to fire breaks because just this is such a vast fountain grassland so when you're posing your question i was thinking well Maybe in some valley, <laughs> yeah, or yeah, or and maybe fountain grass. I don't know. Like, it's when is it green? <laughs> it all depends on the rainfall. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's uh, it's it varies um, quite a bit. Like in Puawa, the uh, stage of the grass growth is going to depend on when the cattle uh, right. were last through there. Right, right. So the cattle could be pulsed. Mm -hmm. in a prescribed fashion yeah yeah i mean you think you were part of they did that study years and years ago mick castillo yeah yeah in puanahulu yeah Yeah, i was involved with that it's very cool just uh, again for the if we if we end up publishing this but it was just a combination of grass spraying grazing i mean different combinations treatments of grass and and including prescribed fire but it's been pretty limited as far as any further investigation since then. And I know the fires that have gone out of control, people are fairly gun-shy. Well, Kekalika was commenting at the um, Dry Forest Symposium, having the right equipment, yeah, growing the relationship with the surrounding lessee. And uh, so he was going out with his weed eater, and then he got a mower. And, and so the area has expanded that he's able to tend. So just keeping up on your ability to have access to the appropriate technology 
for what you want to do. And Mike, he's not a cattleman, but he is a does maintain a, a herd of a, sh- a flock. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> of market lambs. Uh, we're running about 120 head right now total lambs and ewes and nice. rams. Yeah. Are you moving them around, or is it within a fixed? space pasture wise <laughs> yeah we're moving them all over uh, <laughs> and my wife will tell you that uh, she wishes they would just stay here uh, year <laughs> round and i wouldn't but we don't have the rainfall here i ah, right of course. you know of course. um so so he does have other locations that even if they don't have more rainfall than here, they get rainfall at a different time of year, or they flat out do get more rainfall. You know, here at Kukui Ohivai, on the northwest rift of Hualalai, in the Ainakaha, the vagaries of the climate, I mean, climate change, well, the rest of the world now gets to live with the reality that, that we live with. And, and that's that response to the climate Mm, mm -hmm. of whatever the period of time is. And we often, we know when it begins, but we don't know when it ends. We know when the dry season has started, but we don't know when it's going to end. We know when the wet season started. We don't know when it's going to end. Uncertainty of... For example, um, we had a dry period at the end of, of last year, and then we started getting rainfall. And then some of my kuleana is to tend the glycine, at least around the yard. And I missed it. I, I wasn't able to keep it pulled back when we went from the dry to the wet season. And I'm no longer fearful of glycine because barring fire... I understand that it's cyclical and that we can go in and control it. You know, my uh, cousins who live in central Kona, who are cattle people, and um, just get a little tired of my lamenting about how dry it is here. And, oh, it's been however long since yeah. the last rain. And one of my cousins is telling me, oh, cousin, you have to change your attitude about these dry seasons. Think of how good they are during dry season. You can see where the leaks in your water line are (laughs) during the dry season. The vegetation dies back from your fences and your walls, and you can know where to repair them. And you find all those tools that you lost in the long grass (laughs) of the wet season. (laughs) So Michael's in constant movement with his animals to get them to, to places where... Where, where they can thrive. You know, I, I'm just bummed because aren't they supposed to be eating back all this fuel? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'm not going to name names, but I've definitely had conversations with, with forest ecologists who they don't really understand that there's a science to grazing and that it's, you know, I mean, from the impacts of overgrazing, but just even to plan out, like how many animals you have given a parcel and the type of forage and, and where that. you got to bring them. And then the two-line spittlebug shows, oh, shows up. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, it's yeah. a lot. So when I buy lamb in the store, it's from you maybe? Uh, <laughs> when I buy local? I don't have enough to uh, supply KTA, for example. Um, and part of the year I supply to a white male butcher shop. And okay. So if you buy from there. but. Yeah, uh, chances are, yeah. Cool. But he buys from other people as well. What we found here... Again, Kukuyohivai, Northwest Rift of Hualalai, Kekaha, which is sometimes described as being Vai Ole, we've learned that we use less water growing protein, sheep, 
We keep sheep, couple pigs, chickens, turkeys. They just they wander around, and and Lauren keeps rabbits. But the water budget for them is less than if we kept a garden. Right. Kekalike folks have experimented with aquaponics, mm-hmm. but they did their their system wasn't working well. Uh-huh. We know from friends who live in Kauai High that. Down there, once the system was installed, they only lost slash used a gallon of water a day. They grew under shade cloth under a mango tree. But that's, you know, I cringe when I hear the propaganda about consuming meat. American industrial feedlots are, yeah, they're, they're bad stuff. Yeah. But going back to living within our means... If we could do that, there would not be that hue and cry. Well, don't get me started on counting cow farts towards emissions. Like that's just, <laughs> like, that, that's not, like piling absurdities on top of, anyway. Well, what are all the people in North Africa going Africa gonna to eat? Yeah. You know, all those goats. Yeah, exactly. It's just, there's carbon equivalents are not really equivalents, but that's, that's a whole other. It's just, if you want to have it, there's cultural practice, but this, the benefit of the land use, the land management side of it is, it's undeniable. And um, people in your family, you yourselves have probably done a lot of weed whacking. (laughs) You hit a limit with what you want to do with one of those things and where you want to go. Yep. Um, So I'm I'm astounded by the the fish farms like off of Keohole now. Those cages mm -hmm. are not the equivalent of Lokoia. Yeah. And I thought that we just went through this whole revelation where we want our chickens and our beefs to be free-ranging. Don't we want our fish to be (laughs) free-swimming? You can't have it all. Come on. (laughs) Remember, I have my spirit of abundance. (laughs) Well, um, I would love to hear about your connection to Kaupulehu and to this Ahupua'a and all, I mean... Some of them, I know you yeah. can't tell every single story, but yeah. I mean, your family goes, yeah. talk about lineal descendants, it still goes way back. Clay and I both listened to the Kaleo Kauluau, um, you know, where you're talking about Pele and just just the stories related to this place, the aridness of this place, the scarcity of water, the plants, all of that. We'd love to hear about a little bit about that. So I'll give you that a recitation, but it'll be a noted, yeah. as compared to chanted, um, of our genealogy. Michael and I are the grandparents of Koua Naulua Velo and Maulukua Makamalu Okane, who you met. Mm-hmm. Um, together we're the parents of Kekaulike Prosper and Thelma Kihalani and Owauna Okihalani. Owauna Kapulapula Okihalani Ame Kanani. And it's Kanani through whom the peregrine white Mayflower connection okay. comes. Okihalani kapulapula, okihalani amekahiva hiva. It's through kahiva hiva that the doti, the indentured servant connection comes. Okihalani kapulapula o uluhema lama amekihalani nui. Kihalani nui is the child of Sam and Panana Parker. And that's where the Newton, Massachusetts connection mm. comes in. Uluhema Lama is the child of Luca and Ioane. And Luca is the woman whose family inheritance formed the nucleus of Huehue Ranch, which was founded by her husband in 1886. Before coming to Huehue, John McGuire, who was born off of Mana Road 
in the vicinity of the Pu'ukapu Dairy, mm-hmm. had been a partner in the establishment of Kahua Ranch mm-hmm. in Kohala. Luca is the child of Keloha and Kamaile. Keloha is the child of Haiha and Kohopula'au. And Haiha is the child of Ha'ilau and Kinolau. And these are the people who were in Hawaii in this place of Kekaha, that part of North Kona that goes from Pu'uanahulu in the north through Honokohawiki in the south. And they were here during that time of Cook's arrival, Kamehameha's rise, mm-hmm. and the eruptions that define the part of Kekaha that Kukui Ohivai, our home here, yeah. is situated at. So the black lava flow uh, between Kiholo Bay and the Kona Village Resort at Kahuvai Bay, yeah. and then the Puhiapele flow that the Keoholi Airport sits on. So that's us from now to that time. Yeah, mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, it's amazing because, you know, we have all these fire questions, right? And I think about that your family has been dealing with fire <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> and exactly the reason when, when, when Clay and I yeah. met that um, the families of this part of Kekaha were tapped by the Pacific Island Climate Change Cooperative mm-hmm. because of our ability to live in a water-stressed environment yeah. and weather the vagaries of climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about then and now, you know, um, what your family, I mean, assuming they were like actually witness to these flows and, you know, do you have stories, anything yeah. that you wrote, that you've been passed down about any of it? I mean, you talk a little bit about it in the, pre, the one podcast, but it's so amazing. Those Mo'olelo. When I was young, so I was born in Kona. When I was six months old, my father was accepted to UCLA. Mm-hmm. So we moved to California for him to have his, his education there. Uh, before he got his degree, we moved back to Hawaii to tend to family business. And we stayed on Oahu for a number of years just because there were more employment opportunities for him there. But this was always home. Yeah, mm-hmm. This was always where we returned to. If we came home um, from Los Angeles, uh, we'd land in Honolulu and come here for a week and go back to Honolulu. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was always where we returned to. This was always the landscape that is in my mind's eye and in my dreams when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a kid, uh, even in Los Angeles, I would dream of the view from this house and before the, the vegetation grew up, before mm-hmm. the, the fire-carrying silver oaks took over, we had quite a good view of Puhiapele, and I, I used to have dreams of, of that particular landscape. When I was a little bit older, my parents were aina-forward people. Wherever we were, we went out and looked at the land. When we would come home, um, mother had the book Kona Legends that her great-great-grandmother had translated from the Hawaiian and was published by the Paradise of the Pacific circa 1926, I think it was. Nowadays, we have the Hawaiian language newspapers in their original form. We have people among us who can translate them. We can read them a little bit. I can read it myself a wee bit. Um, But until this time, Kona Legends was a place saver for so many of the old folks Mm -hmm. in this region. Because while they might have been able to read the Olelo Hawaii, their kids did not. Mm -hmm. So this was a way to, again, hold a place until this time 
that we are in now. So when um, I was like, let's say between six and 12, dad loved to paint and cook. Um, Jalapepe was one of his favorite subjects. So he'd be out painting Jalapepe and mother would be out hunting goats and um, going hunting with mom. She would be able to share with me the stories that her gaga, her great-grandmother had um, translated into Kona legends. So that was the stuff that I grew up with. If she was going hunting down at Puhiapele, well, this is where the two sisters lived, and this is Puhiapele, and, and there's Puhiapele's sister over there. So some of those geographical references, I now know that Puhiapele's sister is, is the hill called Nahaha. Mm-hmm. And Nahaha is a hill of significance because among the hills that Robert Keakealani Ma would go to gather the cinders to make the palu balls for the opelu was the hill Nahaha. Right. And even subsequent to that, I learned by walking feet down there that Nahaha was where the Huehue Kukio Kaupulehu Trail traversed to get to the Pu'u'okai, which would then take them down to either Kukio, where the trail would split into many sections mm-hmm. to go to different areas there. And, and think, thinking like we just turned off of the county road and mm-hmm. got onto the subdivision road. Right. And this little trail would take us to the Waiopai, to the Ankeline Ponds. And this trail here would take us to that particular little little bay or finger of lava mm-hmm. that was held important or dear. And that was how I learned these things. Amazing. Very cool. It's like you know having to move through the landscape and it just it saves it's all written there <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank goodness so when I, when I was looking at the how did you learn this oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. we went but in, important yeah. to note that with the work of Kepa Mele and mm. others now I know that Puhia Pele's sister is Nahaha mm. and that's not to be confused with the two sisters who were roasting breadfruit who had different names mm-hmm. but nonetheless there's an intimacy and a sense of interactiveness, because, you know, in, in, in Kona in the 50s, it wasn't unusual for a lot of 10-year-old kids to be driving the, 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 the Jeeps, the <laughs> yeah. GPs, oh, the yeah. general purpose vehicles right. that had come. And, you know, mom would, I would, mom, I would drop mom off at the, at the hill Pili, and she'd say, okay, pick me up at Puhiapele. <laughs> So, so, so it's interactive, yeah. yeah. And that, that, those were the reference places. So when Kepa and his amazing canon of work yeah. came to be in an interactive mm-hmm. and intimate way, it, it flowed well. So the challenge to us now is we've done a good job, you know, among us in our part of the world, Le Kiakelani Leitner and, and her niece Kule. Case are paragons to us, and the ways that all of us have kept the stories, the names, the spatial relationships yeah. current is commendable. Kepa says that although this was not a densely populated land because of that lack of water, right? As soon 
as we were introduced to the steel-tipped pen, we um, began recording our thoughts, our times, our histories, so that the Kahalans are among the best recorded in the Payaina, even though our population density was small. But we made those commitments, we made those commitments, and we continue to practice that commitment. Mm -hmm. So we've got the mo'olelo, you know. We can talk about the two girls roasting breadfruit and how that story unfolds across the landscape including the filling in the uplands of the breadfruit grove of Kameha'ikana, and then in the lowlands, the filling of the pond of Pa'ai'ea, which is said in the Hawaiian language newspapers to be three miles long and one mile wide. Hyperbole is a traditional and customary (laughs) practice also. (laughs) But we know that there is a big fish pond down there. And in a practical interpretation of that story, Kamehameha is on his rise right. to be a successful man. But he got a reminder that no matter his success in the hierarchy among Kanaka, there's still more rungs on the ladder. Oh, yeah. I love that. No, I want to hear more about that because I think that there's so much in that that can teach us about today. Because it's sort of like, you know, in, in the most surface way, Kamehameha is deified understandably but when you were reminding us that actually this happened <laughs> and he has to be mindful and leaders like, today like need to be rungs got cut out. yeah we need to be mindful too what how do you think that applies today and what does that have to teach us it's so exciting there's a cohort across the islands called the Ahupua'a Accelerator Initiative. Yeah, Pua'ala Pasco, yeah. Yep, so, so funding with um, Castle Foundation yeah. and Kamehameha Schools, tall. And Ka'upulehu is one of the six sites. So there's Ka'upulehu on this island. There's the entire island of Kaho'olawe. There's, oh, where Ikolu Lindsay folks are, Po'ola. And in near Lahaina. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's Kavela on Moloka'i. There's Heia on Oahu and Haena on Kauai. So here in Kaupulehu, we used our portion of funding as a cohort area, landscape, to hire Huliawa Pa'a, uh, Kelly Uyeyoka, and Kekueva Kikiloi folks, who are Hawaiian archaeologists, mm-hmm. Society for Hawaiian Archaeology, but it's very Kanaka mm-hmm. based. It's Wahikupuna based. Mm-hmm. So they were engaged to travel with us on a series of huaka'i that have taken us so far up to Uluha'o, the Dwart family program, at about 6,000 plus feet on Hualalai. First trip. Second trip, we went from Donkey Mill up and over Hualalai and then down through Koloko. Third field trip was the Kula lands between the uh, Ka'ahumanu Highway in the lowlands and the Mamalahoa Highway in the uplands. And we're going to do a ocean huaka'i with the Nakachi family in Moana Ohana so that we can see the landscape from that perspective. But the task for us is, among many things, is for these huaka'i to be multi-generational. So they've all had three generations of us, that we're all on the landscape together, telling the stories of each other's families, understanding that 
well, the view from over there might not be the same as the view from over there. And your occupation might not be the same as their occupation. So even recording the inconsistencies, because the inconsistencies do not necessarily show disagreement, Mm -hmm. but they do show different perspectives. Sure. So Kippa folks have raised the standard of ethno-history. Yeah, major. We're raising the standard of ethno-futures. No, I like it. (laughs) No, I like it because that's the big question to me, you know, thinking about what happens on Maui and the attention it raises, because I feel like people are already thinking about this and maybe it's more about bringing that that kind of thinking, making more people aware of it, of like how the past informs the future. And everybody sees now, and it became so painfully obvious that like we can't let the lands be this way, but you know how many different ways they could be in the future, it makes it so exciting to think about. And then how that can be informed by the past, I mean. And we have to make the links. Yeah. Because they're not self-evident. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, this is this had traction down at Kona Village Resort yesterday. Have y'all seen Pretty Woman? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Long time ago. But yeah. yeah. Okay, so go back a long time ago. It's ethno history now. <laughs> there's that scene towards the end of the movie when Julia Roberts' character is getting all cleaned up and she's leaving the life and and she's packing up her stuff and her roommate says, you know, well, you always wanted, you know, your knight in shining armor to come and rescue you. Richard Gere hasn't come up the fire escape with yeah. bouquet yet, right. so it's just before that. Um, <laughs> What would you do if your knight in shining armor showed up? And Julia Roberts' character goes, well, I'd rescue him right back. Right. <laughs> and, and that's the role like that it. we're in. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's everybody it. gonna come and rescue us. They can come rescue us. Yeah. You know, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna help you produce whale oil for the world. We're gonna, right. we're gonna here, here, help, let us help you with our religion. Oh, here, let us help you with our economic. I think that this is, the best time of my life anyway yeah for us to rescue him right back yeah well no one's really coming to the rescue you know what i mean in the sense that yeah like the the or i maybe the more specific way to put it is that like the solutions to what needs to happen are here like it's with the knowledge right. that's and not that there's not new things to come or that we can look outside to adopt things but I hear when a conversation like this gets going and it's a more mixed audience. (laughs) If I haven't actually been accused of being a technophobe, they were thinking it like really loudly. And and Michael and I were talking about this. I'm not afraid of technology. It's just that it doesn't work that well. You're in good company. (laughs) Yeah, I think the three of us sitting at this table recognize it's not going to save us. No. No. But appropriate technology is a fantastic tool. Yeah. But let's let's choose. Yeah. Well, it's also there's that sort of dangling thing of where it's some easy, you know, a quick fix, easy right. fix, and right. yeah. I mean, this is what always comes back down to like caring for plants, you know, which you guys have a long history <laughs> of here, and that just that idea, and anyone who's done that work, you know, we're not gonna be like, it's not gonna be saved by drones, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I, I mean, always coming back to that and the lessons that there are to learn from. I mean, as just an example, that's not the only work. Or a drone as a, as a herbicide uh, d- deployment system is not, you know, it's yeah. kind of appropriate Yeah, technology. well, there's exactly, there are tools. I mean, they're doing really cool stuff on Kauai with them and the rare plants on the cliffs and things. And But yeah, just those quick fixes, I think we need to be wary of, or just not wary of, because I think the people that are having these conversations generally are pretty aware they know yeah. they know that we actually have to make societal shifts yeah. and investments and, it's gonna and take decisions work. Yeah. and it's going to be hard well this is not meant to be um a language sidebar but there's a um at church um kahu always talks about how when he was young he didn't like to hear his his tutu folks say which is usually patient you know be patient mm-hmm. be patient but, but just looking at the component parts of the words, so again, disclaimer, this is not a language lesson. <laughs> but if we look at the parts of the word, ho to cause, manava time, to become nui, that puts us closer to the mindset of working with the time it takes to grow that llama seed. Yeah. yeah. And aren't they particularly difficult among yeah. the seeds to grow? That's it. Yeah. So they, they do not grow upon our convenience. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Keakua, and this is not a theological debate. Keakua, whatever that creative, formative energy, that dynamic, universal force, by the logic and proportion of those laws of creation, that's how long it takes a lemma to grow. Yeah, right. absolutely. Right. And you're going to get a better product when you are in accord with that timing yeah. mm-hmm. rather than your ease or convenience. That's it. Or your grant cycle. I was just going to say, I was just going to bring this example up. We just did this survey of, um, and I think your son was one of the participants in it, but we did a survey of native plant growers. And the most shocking thing, we just closed this thing, and the most shocking thing to me was the planning cycle that everyone's on because of the grants and the vast majority, it's one to two years out. So we're here sitting here, the people that we're, you know, we're relying on that have all the knowledge, that have all this, you know, amazing amount of resources in the sense, in the sense of the skills that they have. Um, yeah, they're all kind of one to two years was what we're on the time scale for re- reforesting landscapes. And yeah, that's part of the change we were just talking about is that, that we need to be thinking research <laughs> design mm-hmm. because how can the grantors learn what it is that they're looking for if the research designs are skewed right and and because we talk about that with Pu'uva'ava'a and the akaka foundation for tropical forests kayaulu mm-hmm. project if our field techs are committed to growing plants as organically and pot as possible and using herbicides minimally mm-hmm. either for um, initial removal or to maintain fence lines right. for example how do you design a, a research proposal that takes that time frame into account into consideration yes. what, what did they say Oh, we're still in oh, the what? what, yeah, are we what, like, yeah. what How do answer? we do that? No, because no, that's no. a hard one, right? Yeah. You're not using chemicals. I'm familiar with the you know the project a little bit, and it's just it's going to be slower and harder. So among the things that we've you know that we've we've tossed around as well, um, can we instead of looking at number of plants going into the ground, can can we look at a percentage of success? Yeah, that's a big change that 
probably would be helpful. Big change, but yeah. too long. Yeah, Because totally. we cannot wait so, until we yeah. see what the success rate is. But what if we changed our minds? I'm, I'm working on it. Yeah. I mean, there are some examples out there we just talk about where you have some opportunities, you know, it's like the technical term is substituting space for time, right? Where you can kind of have some time series where you look at older sites and try to get a sense, you know, of a baseline from there. So you, you can't, you're only ever going to have maybe three years for a research project, maybe five if you're really lucky. Um, and, you know, those, those opportunities, I mean, honestly, I think some of the longer term work that's out there is still from what i know maybe even from the national park but it's on the order of a decade or two right so it's and it, that's that's not yeah it's not small, very much time yeah. so um, maybe there would be a thing like for conservation conference to have um a section on this and and to have um, maybe even leading up to conservation conference to have some guided conversations on how to do this. Yeah, you know, we were just uh, again yesterday at Kona Village. We were just talking about our um, triweight, the ten-year yeah. all species rest of marine area from the high water mark out to a depth of 120 feet, mm-hmm. and it's all extractive activity. Right. No limu, no opihi, no he'e, not only finned fish, but including finned fish, of course. And um, in our conversation, the interviewer was going, oh, well, you're seven years in. How long did it take you to get to this this point? 20 years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and she was just astounded. So this, this person was a youngster, 40, a very much of the electronic age, and it verged on inconceivable yeah. that somebody would stay with something for that long. For a long time. But she's also yeah. very bright. So she got it. Not sure that everybody in the audience was able to do that, but that's where we need to adjust our relationship to time. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. And I, I mean, I talk with a lot of young um, folks who are, myself included, actually share that mindset of, of often forgetting I mean, in relation to some of the problems and issues that we kind of deal with, again, if it's in the context of conservation or restoration, that like people have been working on this stuff for a long time and it takes time. Um, and that, and then maybe this is part of the reason that we don't understand that because a lot of what we can learn is from telling stories of folks that have, when you've started projects like yourself, when they've started projects like this and how long you had to work on it to get to where it is, you know, Ka'upule, who the, the foresters are what I'm thinking about is an example of like what, kind of all the research that was centered around there's some pretty funny contentious back and forths about that place like what you know what is the right way to do things and research wise versus restoration but like all of those stories it's hard to get caught up on I think you know it takes time in the career doing it to even meet enough people having enough conversations to like realize oh my gosh like people have been working in that but 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 the first steps because you know the what what is now known as ho'olakamakana'a um, started here at this table as well, yeah. and um, back before there was a dry forest working. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, that's when, right. When someone saw what we and another family were doing, just because we love the forest, right. and we got permission from the landowners to go out and weed. Yeah, um, Andy Ewan, and I forget which agents, what federal agency he was with, but he saw the, the work that we were doing as hobbyists and wanted to reward us, but. We didn't want to be a part of that, so the um, Dry Forest Working Group got formed. And, you know, we, we caught um, criticism because we would invite cowboys right. to our table, too. Yeah. You know, and our rule was, 
check your shoes, your guns, and your egos at the door. <laughs> Come inside. I love it. But it was it was fortuitous that there was a um, an accidental ignition of fire across the street from us during the time of the the, the early dry forest yeah. working group, mm. and some of our friends from the federal agency had just been you know, we were fraternizing. With those cowboys, <laughs> <laughs> we got to we got to go down onto the landscape, and this is after the fire. But do a little bit of analysis on how the fire behaved in the grazed areas, right. as compared to the ungrazed areas, right. and the crowns of the trees were less damaged yeah. in which area or the other. And so, you know, it was just a fire grace that, that came upon us that we were able to take them out and to, to go into the field and have that little conversation together. Mm-hmm. So we caught less criticism for being fraternizers. Yeah, I mean, and that's old, but I feel like, I feel like it's only been within recent years that some, like, people are starting to turn and fire right fire presents these opportunities to really think through this as like oh my goodness you know i think the scale (laughs) of the landscapes and i obviously you know my my opinion there's a there is not enough respect or appreciation for what the challenges that ranchers face no totally and the skills that they bring to the table yeah from our house in april of 1988, there were four lightning strike fires that were ignited around our house. Behind of us, the fires were ignited near to where Hualalai Ranch had their bulldozers. Okay. Less than 100 acres burned behind of us. Looking down from here, it was it was like what's on the news from the continental United States. Yeah. I was eight months hapai. My mom was weeks away from death. And um, Michael was at work, and I had relatives who were living in the house next door where Kekaulike and his family mm. live now. And I had a friend who was staying with me because Michael was at work. We packed our, our stuff, anything that we needed to get out the house, put it at the back door and asked them if they would take the things, please. And we went, we went down to town and had, had dinner because I just wanted to get away yeah. from yeah. the fire-ness yeah. <laughs> of it. The, the next day, one of the neighboring ranchers made their bulldozer available, and Michael took the day off from his work at Pohakuloa training area as a firefighter and walked in front of the bulldozer because there are lots of lava tubes. There's yeah. a lot of unstable ground in Ka'upulehu, and so they were able to, to build a nice fire break. So despite the drama of the flames, it was kept. Yeah, uh, you, had, uh, you had help. <laughs> And the thing with the cowboys, with with the ranches being able to come in, is there is not departmental jockeying and debating over, well, you rented the the piece of equipment. Who's going to rent the gas? Who's going to transport the equipment? Just do it. It is done. Mm -hmm. So I'm intrigued with this notion of the fire marshal. Yeah. Uh, re- resuming that position, as I understand it, back in the 20s, 30s, like that, the, the ranches were, because they're so vast, were the fire marshals for their area. Yeah, and of the I think, um, you know, the equivalent would have been the plantations, right, uh, where yep. they were. Yeah. And it was this partnership, at least with the state, I know, but also I've talked to plenty uh, county fire departments, and they would just say, man, these guys would have it you know, contained before we got there oftentimes. And it was, that's when you talk from the perspective of the fuels and you think about the shrinking footprint of all these operations. And that's really the contribution, why we're seeing so many fires and why they're so big from the 
firefighter's perspective, it's all the help that's no longer available. And just the knowledge, like, where's the gate? What road? Where do we go? Like, how do we even get there (laughs) to that column of smoke? And back in the day, they would have all this help. So one of the things in Kekaulike's work out at Ho'olakamakana, he's developing a, a better, it's always been cordial, but now a better working relationship with the lessee mm-hmm. of the surrounding landscape to where he can go out and, and do some weed oh, nice. eating yeah. uh, to improve the access to the makai section right. of Ho'olamakana Ah and just being better neighbors with one another. Yeah. So, you know, if we go back to where we began and can engender that sense of, if not an abundance of the resource of goodwill. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. If we could cultivate that among each other, and that's, you know, we had talked about this a little bit, about that notion of aloha ike kahi ike kahi. Yeah, I'd love for you to tell tell our listeners first, what does that mean and how does that inform the way your perspective and stewardship? We see it voiced in a variety of ways. Aloha ike kahi ike kahi. Aloha from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, we also hear aloha aku. Aloha mai, aloha away from me, aloha towards me. The example that I have used is in Ka'upulehu, there were a variety, there were a couple of significant land discretionary permit interventions that I was involved with. One was on an Army Corps of Engineers permit to do nearshore dredging in front of what is now the Hualalai Resort. Mm-hmm. And the offshoot of that was that one of the conditions of permit, uh, one of the con- conditions on the permit when it was approved, was that there would be the formation of the Ka'upulehu Marine Life Advisory Committee, which is the group that has put forward the tri weight, right. okay. the 10 year rest proposal. Oh. So, you know. What, where, when are we talking the Army Corps? 1993 94. Okay. This is important because so many of the community based subsistence, fishing, or other resources management initiatives come from a very different genesis than we do. Right. We, we were a condition of settlement of, of an intervention right. on an Army Corps of Engineers mm-hmm. permit. But because we came forward with that notion of aloha aku, aloha mai, mm-hmm. yeah. we found that after the prescribed amount of time had come to pass and we had done our work and mm-hmm. keeping with the condition of approval, we liked what we were learning together. Mm. Right. That sunsetted, but we we continue. I mean, was there res- I'm assuming there was like resistance to that initial plan. I mean, having that as like a spark to get people engaged must have been kind of a leg up as far as the initiation, like getting the folks involved. The the folks at the table, whether proponents or opponents of the Army Corps permit, found a collegial, congenial uh, group of people in that notion of a table set in Aloha. Yeah. Right. You create a safe space for people to to speak freely and fully and not condoning rude behavior mm-hmm. right. but creating a place of safety that people could speak fully and freely codes of conduct too or expectations that this we are inclusive in this group we're going to listen to yeah. everyone who's here yeah one of the parties to the intervention when buckaloose from us <laughs> they just they um did not agree with the direction that we were taking mm. but but the formal entity had already come to the end of its 
prescribed lifespan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, they continue to be on our transmittal list, but they stopped attending Mm -hmm. um, attending the meetings. And that's fine because Hawaii Ne is a large enough and I still believe a sweet enough place that we can hold these diversities of opinion. And, and it, in some ways it represents the strength within mm -hmm. us that we can hold diverse opinions, but we all have to go shop at KTA, yeah? So. That's it. Right. <laughs> or, yeah, right. or as Kikuhi Kanaka Ole said, like, you can't, can't have, have this place where we're hating at each other. You know, you just cannot be coming from that place. No. It's just too small. Yep. And it's too much to do. So in the other intervention, Kapa'akayoka Aina, which set the foundation for the um, uh, cultural impact statement, now and the Kapa'akayoka I know is decided in the year 2000. I gather that state agencies are just all interested in developing Kapa'akayoka Aina standards and checklists and, and how to do things. It was decided 23 years ago. 23 years ago, the prescription was made, but sometimes that's just how long. It takes. it takes. Yeah. And if we lose interest, then poho, because it yeah. will be for naught. But right. when we don't lose interest and we have a long enough lifespan, mm -hmm. or like the kids that have come up from their middle school years mm -hmm. to being young adults now, when soon we will be done waiting, they see civic engagement as a norm. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to ask you this about this specifically because I was just reading recently and the idea of not only teaching people to be leaders themselves, but um, teaching people to keep leaders under control. <laughs> the idea, right, to like, so this idea of engagement that's going to just remind me of your work. And I'm curious um, if through that and the community level work, it seems pretty obvious, but I'm curious if you have any opinions about kind of the restoration, ecological work, that community of workers, if there's enough going on. I mean, and some people may get into engagement through their work, like if they're working for the state, for example, but I just, I'm curious what your thoughts are if we're doing enough or, you know, more, there needs to be more direct engagement. And I'll just kind of be in the open. My, my opinion is that there's not a, enough of awareness of how few resources are invested in those kinds of programs, whether it's sort of at the state or these nonprofits, but the fact that I, my opinion is like, we're not, we're not doing enough. <laughs> so that I'm just curious what your thoughts are and how that community level work connects maybe to that bigger picture of seeing everyone that wants to do this work that has so much love for this work, being able to actually have careers in it and the connect, how that connects back to civic engagement. Hard work, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, theoretically, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Right. Yeah. And then you go volunteer or you get an internship. And yeah. it's like, no, I, I really wanted to be a massage therapist. Yeah, maybe yeah, 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 yeah. for everybody. <laughs> I like hotel industry. Yeah. Hospitality, that's where that's I'm at. Right. I think we err as a society when we don't help one another be better followers before we ask one another to be better leaders. Mm. I 100%. I believe that if we learn to follow better, we'd have a higher quality of leadership. So that's my opinion on that. Mm -hmm. we, we touched on, on a, the youngsters, or not the youngsters. I told them I'd stop saying that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you might have referred to a 40-year-old as a youngster, and I, I smile. I like that, actually. <laughs> I do. So you can imagine how, you know, those 20-year-olds. But, but my younger colleagues 
I feel so blessed to spend most of my civic engaged hours in resources management. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There may be a, a dearth of funding, there may be a dearth of time, there may be a dearth of people, but there is not the meanness of spirit yeah. no, not at all. that I have observed in other sectors. Mm -hmm. right. People ask and I want to help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I get I'll go off in other sectors of less interest to me than this. Uh, resources management is where my major investment of time and, and treasure is. But when I go to those other places and there is such just flat out meanness, mm -hmm. I'm so grateful. Maybe it's, we don't have nature deficit disorder. That's it. Right. Yeah. we're outside. Yeah. <laughs> we're supposed to be. It definitely calms the soul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boy, you should try check out education sometime. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, or healthcare, or I was whatever. just thinking healthcare Housing. too. Oh my god! Right. Well, I mean, there is there's so much anger around so many things, and at times I don't fault anybody for it. I mean, in the sense that there are things to be angry about. So, um, and sometimes I'm like, maybe maybe we need to be a little more angry. No, <laughs> <But then laughs> I knew you'd say that. <laughs> And I don't mean that in the sense of, but like maybe, you know, there is uh, like a fire sometimes sure. that where, where, you know, speaking of fire, that, that and that yeah. sense of just that kind of energy where it's more like, this is something we need to fight for. Correct. We don't have to be angry about it, but that it's going to take work in more like the work that you've been doing versus just weeding. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Michael could tell you stories about my anger. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then I have what we call a, a, my restaurant demeanor. Mm. Oh, yes, no more water. Thank you. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> but that's the inspirational part. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the dynamic part that keeps you going. Yeah. Keep going. We're going to try to wait for 10 years, but it's taken us 20 years to start waiting. Yeah. As, as Kekolike testified somewhere along the way. Well, if we'd started when my mom folks first suggested it, it would be over <laughs> for six years. <laughs> there, there, so there are a number of issues here. I do not believe that the effect of the Vietnam War mm. has been adequately considered in terms of the damage done yeah. and the healthy skepticism of that era that has turned into the elevation of being contrary mm -hmm. just to be contrary because being skeptical i believe is is a healthy manifestation yeah but being contrary just for the sake of contrariness is not healthy or beneficial yeah and at least in, in, in my lifetime, it starts with, with Vietnam. You know, and, and one of the things that I'm so relieved about, because there were so many advances made by angry Viet vets mm -hmm. in the Lahui. Yeah. I'm so relieved that whatever Kaumaha the, the young people are coming up with, they don't have that. Yeah. Right. They just seem so much more positive and solution-oriented. Because had Vietnam, then had the nihilistic yeah. season. What does it matter? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And right. and it it seems like we're we're in, in another season. And I'm grateful for it and I'm grateful that I'm living this season in Hawaii Nay. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um so grateful for that. Did that answer the question? I mean, no, it did. It's because it's a, you're talking about the, the energy and how it, I mean, that's in a bigger way. I mean, that like opens up 
uh, dozens of more questions that I don't even know what we what we, what we have time for, where to go. Um, but you were going to say. Uh, anyway. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it reminds me a lot of like when we sat down with Keomoku Kapu, you know, who has had to sustain himself with a lot of anger yeah. over decades. And, you know, and, and all, we, we were speaking sort of off the record about a friend of mine who's very angry about what's going on. He's lost his home and his concern, you know, like, like he needs to stay with us. He's got to see this through. This is a long. This is going to be a we long need, time. We need him. We need all of them. So there's yep. a place for that, of yep. course. There's so much grief, and I like to think of grief or anger. I saw read this somewhere as it's love with nowhere to go. Mm. Where does it? is it going to sit and so maybe directing that to somewhere but yeah I think maybe you Keimoku you know others it's like we just have to see this through for a really long time so (laughs) we have to be prepared for that and angry that can only get you to a certain place maybe and seeing you 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 have found channels for it yeah (laughs) yeah to to direct that energy whether it's not necessarily coming from anger but just the fire yeah during Kapa'akayoka Aina, one of the things that we did, and, and we were before the State Land Use Commission for approximately three years, and we would have a study hall every week, either to go over the aspects of the case, or if there were no aspects of the case to go over, to learn more about the land or, or whatever. But we were we were diligent in our weekly meetings, and we also embraced a practice if someone was feeling weak can i help you to the pune'e do you need a kihei Mm -hmm. you want a cup of miso soup Mm -hmm. because we want to be with one another for a long time yeah that's it and you approach that ho'omanavanui from a strategic application of the seasons of one another's lives Mm -hmm. you know like there's that season of your life where what? Only eight hours at the table? Let's go for more. <laughs> to like, oh, yeah. only an hour and a half? We're just talking about that. Can we have lunch? Yeah, we literally were. We literally were. Uh, that's funny. The long view. Yep. Living within our means mm-hmm. then becomes not only about our treasure, our stuff, but also those seasons of our lives. Mm-hmm. To do... And I say season rather than age, because some folks go long, right. some folks are here and they're gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So season right work, season right effort. You know, I, I, I spend a lot more time in Pule now than in other times when it was gasa gasa go, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. go, go. Yeah. And they're both satisfying, and I have every reason to believe they're both helpful. I want to, um, I'm selfish in that, I want to return back to aloha ike kahi ke kahi. And also the notion of aloha no, because, um, and this is, I'm just going to, full disclosure, I'm thinking through an art project in which mm-hmm. the theme is aloha no. And there are so many different ways of aloha. And I'm just wondering if you can share, I think, with our listeners a little bit about the reciprocity. Karma, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Right. One word. Sometimes it's instant, yeah. (laughs) Um, It's inherent, if we let it be. Mm -hmm. It's interactive when we're enjoying it well. It's intimate at its deepest level it's a way that the tangible and the intangible can communicate it like love 
is a choice. It, like love, is an emotion. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier about the order of creation. I've heard it said that the that Aloha is the intelligence with which we greet the future. And I think Ipo Kumukahi's father said that in Manu Meyer's dissertation. So when we think of Aloha in those ways, that indeed it's that you know, Aloha Nui, it's that feeling that we have for one another. There's that component. But that it's an intelligence. And when members of the community were on opposite sides of the Kapa'akayoka Aina table in a contested case hearing, in an environment that is built to be adversarial, yeah. that we never broke the form of first, Aloha Ikekahi Ikekahi, kept the discourse at a much higher level. Mm. There was not that distraction of vitriol mm-hmm. and, and, you know, just that undercurrent of agitation and anger and, yeah. and that. So it's a very intelligent way to move through your life. You know, when you say mm-hmm. aloha no, I don't know, I just think of Robert Casimiro singing <laughs> aloha no, and can you just have that be your, yeah. uh, your soundtrack while you're That's doing your it. art and we'll call it good? <laughs> yeah, because his voice yeah. so embodies yeah. what that intangible yeah. aloha is. Yeah, you know, I, I remember <laughs> suggesting to Michael, you know, if if I was being angry, try to cue up Ros- Robert Casanero, yeah, yeah. oh, no, and let's see what happens. Magic recipe. <laughs> yeah, Kwana Torres Kahele just mm. brought him on stage as a surprise oh. at the Palace Theater about last year. Oh, it was yeah. amazing. He's you know oh. been through I don't know a cancer treatment. He's ball ahead, you know, and mm. just his voice was identical to the 1970s. I mean, that richness, it was, yeah, as you said, Aloha No, that intensifier, it was amazing. Yeah, and just, when he sings Aloha No, he thrills to his own voice. Yeah, 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 he's enjoying it too. And that's, and and, 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 he's good. (laughs) And, and does not Aloha do that to us? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we do Aloha Aku, Aloha Mai, do we not soar? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. On a good day. On a good day. Well, it's funny because it's beyond necessity. Because you you already talked about you know you gotta you're gonna you're gonna see everyone at KTA right. So there's yeah. a, a you know right. an adaptive function there. There's practical <laughs> considerations. But but beyond that, just talking we where we started right the abundance of within ourselves. I mean that requires your community you know, support booing up from, from outside, too. When we were at the Army Corps of Engineers hearing, and I had given my oral testimony, and one of my cousins from, um, from Puako, who uh, was in favor of the project, happened to be right after me. So as he's coming up, he goes, Cousin, that was a very good presentation. I said, Cousin, I look forward to your rebuttal of it. <laughs> And that's exactly what happened, was people laughed. Mm -hmm. One of our cohort then followed cousin, and he led with his testimony that the family just showed us a better way Mm. to conduct business. Yeah. Yeah. Aloha no. Oh, aloha no. (laughs) Well, I I can't think of really anything more I would want to end on. (laughs) 
I should ask you, Hannah, if there's anything more that you would like to touch on or tell our listeners as we close. Just that, that you know, avail yourselves of the Hawaiian language newspapers. Um, so, so a lot of the mo'olelo that we did not get to um, are available now. Puakea yeah. right. Nogelmeyer's students uh, for their work with Ike Vai uh, compiled all together in one place mm-hmm. the articles from the Hawaiian language newspapers mm-hmm. that Kepa often refers to and will interpret through the lens of whatever research project that he's doing. So they're they're out there. Thank you for your interest in them, but I really enjoyed uh, the way the conversation um, moved. <laughs> this is wonderful. I can't thank you both enough. You're welcome. So much for just your mana'o, your ike, everything you know that we're talking about, everything from values to long view to fire on the land. Uh, yeah, it's been really wonderful. Clay, do you have anything to add as we close? No, just thanks. <laughs> uh, well, and thanks for welcoming into your house. We're just having us here is a, is a treat. 